Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, one of the men I'm most thankful for, Jerry Springer. Yeah, happy, uh, well, f- as we record this, this is the week of Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and which it, it, that's a time of year that I always get nervous. Why's that? <laughs> well, uh, well, it's not safe for us turkeys. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, hey. No, every wow. time I know. <laughs> huh? It's going to be a t- great half hour, yeah. folks. <laughs> Jeez, well, well, maybe you'll get... Uh, pardoned by Donald Trump along with what was a drumstick <laughs> yeah. and that. Drumstick, oh, yeah. that's right. <laughs> hey, we have some cool stuff tonight. Yeah, we do. Yes. You know, we have this thing called the Songwriter Stump on our website, jerryspringer.com. And we ask people, because we have a steady parade of uh, young roots performers and yes. songwriters who come in, sometimes solo acts, sometimes groups. And they come, from, they're touring people and sometimes regional people. And we ask people if they want a chance to highlight one or two of their songs to send us something. Yeah. We vet them. And tonight we have somebody that we got from our songwriter stump off our website, J.T. Hathaway. We're Mm going to hear from him in a little bit. And we're going to get Jerry to talk about this debate that's raging in the middle of some other very high-profile stuff, the tax debate in the country. But we also, and, and this has come up, here's the third really cool thing. Lately, we've had, not back-to-back, but lately we've had a couple of, I call them like folky duos, you know, Roots yeah. Music uh, uh, people who are, and two of them were one of the two, one of the duos is from Canada. Another was the United States duo. And I remember asking both of them, do you guys know who Ian and Sylvia are, were, are? They're, they're alive, but they're, they're not performing as Ian and Sylvia anymore. Both of those duos said, dude, I know. We know all about them. Because if you do what we do, sing in that genre, and you're a duo, a, a man and a woman, you know their music. So uh, I thought it's a long shot, but let's see if we could track down uh, Sylvia Tyson of Ian and Sylvia. And they, they sort of split apart as uh, performers. They were also married for a while. They had a son together, and, and that happened, um, I think, around 1977. And Sylvia Tyson was gracious enough to respond and to say, yeah, I'll get on the phone and talk with you guys. And, and we're going to bring her on in just one second. But for the people who are of a younger generations, um, because people who come from the generation that from was our eight, generation, this is huge. oh, they were iconic. I mean, yeah, they, really iconic. Were. I, when you along told me with, about that, I got excited. I That's mean, great. along with Dylan and Joan Baez, Peter Paul and Mary, the, the Weavers before that, Pete Seeger, etc. They're iconic, and uh, to and the people who come in and perform on our show, I think, kind of stand on their shoulders. Yep. And uh, Sylvia Tyson, and, and they were, they hit the scene coming down from Canada and Toronto. Uh, Ian Tyson came from the Western, from Alberta. Sylvia, I think from Windsor, Canada, above Detroit. 
and they m moved to Toronto for the folk scene, and then they sort of there were and still are very popular there. And then they came down to Greenwich Village where it was all yeah. happening. It really, when you were in high school and college, Jerry, in Queens, yeah. New York, not far from there. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the village is where it was all happening. And, you know, whether it was Joan Baez or Dylan or, you know, yep. Ian and Sylvia, et cetera. They, what I found out in doing a little bit of research, which you gave me, is that uh, uh, Ian and Sylvia had the same manager as uh, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, Janis Joplin. Yep. I mean, totally cool. This is, yeah. you know, this is probably as big as we've had on our podcast, you know. Yeah, well, we, so and we had cool. Paul Stuckey on from yes. Peter, Paul, and Mary. And, and, and we're going to let them fight it out. From the same area. No, but they're both icons yeah. of this genre. And a couple quick things uh, uh, as introduction. Uh, they performed, they were really part of the heyday of folk music, that rebirth of folk music, because it really was happening many years before then. But, uh, and Sylvia Tyson wrote this song, You Were On My Mind, and Ian and Sylvia recorded it. And I'm going to ask David just to play a snip of this. You'll all remember this. recorded it on an album from maybe more than one album they wrote it she wrote it she they wrote, wrote it. that yeah and then the we five recorded, recorded and it got it the number three on the charts yeah, back it, in the it 60s. was a huge song it was yeah. a huge song and oh, by yeah, the way i was dating laura road oh, i'm sorry yeah <laughs> it, but it's a great song and if you really listen to the lyrics they're very cool you know uh, wounds to bind and gonna get drunk and it's just a great song a great kind of it's a great couple song. Uh, and, and by the way, Ian Tyson wrote uh, Four Strong Winds and Someday Soon. Again, some major songs of that era. So let's say hello to Sylvia Tyson. She's on the phone. She's on the phone. Hey, Sylvia. All right. Hey, Sylvia. Hi, everybody. Hey, it, it's really great having, having you with us. And... Uh, you, because I just had mentioned it, you had the same manager as, you know, Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, James, uh, Janice Joplin. Did you ever, um, were you ever on tour with them? No, no, we, we, we weren't. We, uh, we were kind of ships in the night, you know, we'd meet in airports, basically. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. Um, the movement, when we think of the folk music of the late 50s and the 60s, uh, in America, a lot of that movement became very political, uh, whether it was the civil rights movement and then the anti-war movement. And your music seems to be relatively non-political. In other words, you know, just about personal relationships and, 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 you know, subject matter such as that. Were you consciously staying away from what was going on politically? 
I don't think we consciously stayed away from it, but you must understand that we were Canadians and we were visitors in the United States. Yeah, that's we before the wall went up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> we have political views. Yes. But, um, I mean, I have to say for myself, as much as I admire what was done politically with song, I found that a lot of protest songs were like yesterday's news. You know, that that when it was over, it was over. Yeah. Well, that's pretty interesting. And certainly if you try to do something today that was political, it would be old by the six o'clock news. Because Absolutely. Yeah. Do you you are now with a group called the Quartet, right? That's right. And that's uh, four women? Yes, and it's quartet with two T's and an E to make the feminine. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Just while I'm thinking about that, with what's going on in our culture today, you know, this week, um, with the whole women's movement and the whole way men treat women, the workplace and all that, is that, have you had a thought, just even for a second, you know, the four women getting together and... Wow, how about a song about what is going on from the quartet, which kind of seems relevant to me? It, it probably is relevant. We haven't uh, we haven't done that so far. Um, we're all songwriters, and and we all contribute to quartet, and uh, we all have pretty strong views on that. Having faced the things that most women have faced in the music business. Well, you know what that that now that you mention that, yeah, I would in the music industry. Wow, you must be you must have in your lifetime put up with a lot of that, because almost like the you know the comedy the comedians, you know. Yeah. Well, I was fortunate in in my career that my partner was a fairly big guy and fairly intimidating. <laughs> so basically, that's the answer. That's the way to solve this problem. Just, just date big people. Yeah. Um, but I, I certainly faced it in a business way. I mean, I, I certainly had, had people say to me that that uh, when I when I um, was up for a specific uh, performance, that, that they had never paid that amount of money to a female Canadian performer. There really was. That, I shouldn't be shocked. But there was that double standard, what the guys would get paid and what the women would get paid. Yeah, it was the double whammy. Wow. Wow. You, uh, your ability to write. Now, there is something in the materials about you that said, for example, uh, you were on my mind. You wrote that within an hour in a bathtub. Yeah, well, there, there are some interesting um, uh, uh, ideas about that. Uh, I was not taking a bath. <laughs> no, because otherwise, otherwise the script would have gotten all wet. <laughs> yeah, we were we were um, staying in a place called the Earl Hotel in Greenwich Village in New York, yeah. and I found that the bathtub was the only place where the cockroaches wouldn't go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 what a great story! Well. Is it rare to write? To write a song in an hour. Now, I mean, I know that's amazing to write, but at least most of it, because a song seems to be something that you, sometimes it comes from a line you've heard, or just you wake up in the morning and you're thinking, ooh, this, and boom, you quickly write down as many lines as you can. Are there other songs that you've 
written in that in, in a short period of time, or is it normally a lengthy process? You could work weeks on a song. I don't mean refining it, it, it but just getting it down. It really works both ways. Yep. And uh, God knows one wishes that, that one could write everyone, every song in an hour and, and have it be successful as you were on my mind. I should mention that You Were On My Mind was the first song I ever wrote, and Four Strong Winds was the first song Ian ever wrote. Huh. Holy cow. <laughs> that, that's I can think of calls from my accountant <laughs> asking me if I can write another since? one of those. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> oh, man, that, that's, a, that's incredible. That's a, did you, when you, you wrote it, and then you call them a honey. Listen to this. Oh, did you have the tune right away, or did you? Yeah, how did it come? Did the words come? Did it come together? Did you kind of have this, or do the words kind of define what the melody is going to be? And you were not romantically connected at that time, so we were not. No. So calling him and saying, "Hey, honey, what do you think of this?" But he was your music partner, business partner. So what? Well- what was it? And who was on your mind when you wrote that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't him. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I think it was more influenced by the people I was hearing at the time. Certainly, Odetta would have been one of them, the gospel material that she did. Yeah. And definitely. And I don't know that there was anyone specifically in my mind at that time. Yeah, I... I mean, I so admire because what you do because, and I'm not just talking about the singing because the truth is there are a lot of great singers and people who can sing. The ability to write a song that just hits everybody, that is really unique. There you are, the one-tenth of one percent of all humanity that has the ability to do that. So I'm, I'm just amazed with this, how you get all that together. What in what inspired that? Let's talk about that song. What inspired that song? What did you think of first? Was it the first line, when I woke up this morning? Was that what prompted it? Uh, well, possibly. You know, I have to say I wrote it in 1962, and my memory's not really clear on what I was thinking <laughs> at the time. Fair. Yeah, that, 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 that is fair. When you write now, what gets you going? Uh, it can be literally anything. It can be something I see or hear or something I miss here and thought I heard. Um, and uh, it's it's never clear cut. I, I am a writer who tends to write lyrics first and melodies later. Melodies are harder for me than lyrics. I've written some good melodies, but, yeah. but they're harder for me. Hey, Sylvia... Uh... Jerry and I and Megan Hills is with us, our third co-host, and she's much younger than we are. Jerry and I were in college, for example, in the early and up to the mid-60s, in Megan 90s or something. Yeah, I was in college in the early 2000s. And um, <laughs> Sorry, Gene. <laughs> no, I, I figured. And Sylvia's... I won't hold that against her. No, no. <laughs> Thanks, Sylvia. So I, I loved, and Jerry did as well, and he was growing up in New York. I was in Cincinnati, and we loved folk music, and we both, when, when we met each other, he came in to do politics in Ohio. And one thing we shared as friends was this love for that music. And I, so I know of all of these groups. And then the Beatles came, and they pushed their way in, and, and that that hot spot of folk music faded, uh, not instantly, but it cooled. 
And now when you look at, well, what did all those people do? So Bob Dylan went his way, electrified in what was it, 1966 Newport uh, Folk Festival. And then he went towards rock and roll and blues. And then some of those groups like the Kingston Trio, uh, Mitchell Trio, they just went nostalgia till the day they all didn't do it anymore. And the people that took their places, they did nostalgia. But you and Ian... You you changed. You went from, in fact, tell us briefly where you went after the folk craze started to cool, the styles of music you played and evolved to, including to today working with quartet. Uh, what would you call the styles that you touched on as your progression happened? Well, um, a lot of the folk music that we did was Appalachian-based, and of course, Appalachian music is the basis of country music. Right. And so it was a natural progression for Ian and I to move into country music because we greatly admired certain country artists. And um, so it seemed natural at a certain point when, when it looked like the, uh, the folk uh, thing was fading that that we would would look to move in direction that was both comfortable to us and and pertinent to the times, and it seemed natural to go to Nashville because, of course, so many great singers and songwriters and players. Sure. It, it seemed the logical place to go, and so we did uh, two albums in Nashville, in Sylvia Nashville, and and um, uh, God, what was the other one? My memory fails me at this age. <laughs> okay. Well, your um, your background. I mean, you came from at least the music came from Canadian country, Canadian rural. Um, is that not true, or am I making this up? Well, certain of our songs certainly were were Canadian traditional songs, but as I say, a lot of the uh, earlier stuff we did was Appalachian based. Yeah. Which is, of course, the same roots as the Canadian traditional songs. But but maybe fifty a hundred years later. Yep, and a lot of I remember that you did, and the blends of your the blend of your voices was amazing. But you did a lot of almost Elizabethan ballad type songs, did you not? Well, I was I was very taken with the uh, the child ballads and yeah. and the Cecil Sharp collection. And um, I did a lot of research. I, I still am very interested in that music. In fact, I've done a lot of work with early English country dance music as well. All right. Hey, okay. Sorry, uh, uh, give yourself a plug here. So uh, there are a whole bunch of uh, people who are not our age, younger, and uh, didn't obviously weren't alive when when you really hit it big early on. How do we how do we look you up now? How can someone get a taste of your current music? Uh, the best bet is to go to the Quartet website, which is, I say, Quartet with two T's and an E, and to look up my page on the Quartet website. Okay. And it, it will fill you in pretty quickly on what I've been up to. Hey, and, uh, Sylvia, allow us just a small bite of, and David, I'm going to ask you to play the uh, bite from Quartet. I want our listeners to hear what that sounds like, because I think it's pretty amazing. To me, these rocks and roses, beautiful and strong, they mark the places until love comes along. 
that's contemporary. I mean, yeah. I don't know when you recorded that, but it was it's in recent times, correct, Sylvia? That's from our most recent album, which is actually called Rocks and Roses. Okay. On the other hand, I have to tell you that the quartet has been a group for over 22 years now. Wow. Wow. And, to, and, and before we close out, Sylvia, please let people know uh, we want people to know you're a novelist as well, and uh, name your book, or I think you're maybe working on a second or third, and where can they get that if they choose to? Well, my, my book, Joiner's Dream, I think is still available on Amazon. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a family history that, uh, that follows from about the late 1700s to the present day. It's a musical family. They also have uh, other traits which are perhaps uh, less desirable. And uh, do you uh, get my called, show in Canada? <laughs> it's called Joiner's Dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, we do have to ask this because you live uh, you, and you live in Canada, correct? I live in Toronto. Yes. Okay. So uh, can we assume that you? I'll just ask it. Do you know of the Jerry Springer TV show? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Well, Doesn't just everybody? I don't know. Man. It's funny, Sylvia. We went to uh, Cuba, and you still it. came on this yeah, show. Still came on. <laughs> God bless you. We went to Cuba about a year and a half ago with a podcast, and it was great. It was Megan. And I thought it was uh, great, hilarious. That hardly, oh, the, the, har- nah, nobody. Now mo- most people, well, the people from Cuba didn't know about it. There were people They're who communists. Were yeah. Right. <laughs> well, communists are, are uh, thinkers and like music as well. I yeah. Know. Oh, I've been put in my place. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, yeah, Sylvia, you, Sylvia Tyson. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Oh, how cool is that? Very, very cool. That was great. You know, we occasionally find our way, and and I have mentioned this, I have to be vague about it because it's not our agenda, but we're meeting with Paul Stuckey, and for all I know, Peter Yarrow could be there uh, in early December on a joint project uh, that is for the betterment of folk music. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. And it is very cool, since we love, a third of this show loves Roots Music, that we do try to show young listeners how this all fits together, what that evolution is. Yep. It's very cool that they went the path they went. She said something that was perfect. If you're going to evolve, do what you're comfortable with and relate it to the times. That makes sense, because a lot of other uh, folkies did not do that. Couldn't do that, couldn't figure out to do that. Yep. A great book, Four Strong Winds, a biography about Ian and Sylvia, and they they talk about that a fair amount in that book. The only thing that ever works in any form, well, probably in life, but certainly in any form of entertainment, always be authentic. You got it. And, you know, and figure out how the real you fits into what's going on. That's true in acting. It's mm-hmm. true in music. It's true in politics. Podcasting. Podcasting. This isn't us. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, this is no. all we got. No. You know, it's a we can't fake. No, I'm really a dancer in real life. Oh, my. You know, Jerry, in the middle yes. of Russia oh my. and all these scandals that are breaking by the day, Charlie Rose... Oh, there's, the, the list is just growing and growing, Senator Al Franken, et cetera. What seems to be getting lost is this tax debate. Yeah, and it, it, it people hear tax and right away they 
move to change the channel. And yet what is being discussed right now in the United States Senate will probably have a greater effect on our lives, lives of our families, than anything else that is being discussed right now. And here's what got me thinking about it. This past week, you know, the news now has just become like wallpaper. Nothing nothing shocks anymore. I mean, it's, you know, we keep going lower and lower and lower, and it's just another, here's the latest. Here's, you know, if you watch cable news, good Lord, every 10, 15 minutes, whoops, this just in. They can't even get their program together right. You can't produce it in the morning because by afternoon it'll be something else. But there was one clip as I was walking by the TV set last week, and there's this United States Senator, Orrin Hatch, who's 83 years old, and a very respected um, conservative Republican, but, you know, a, a substantial person. And um, he's the chairman of the committee that's going over the uh, Republican uh, tax plan. And suddenly he's screaming at Sherrod Brown, the Democratic uh, liberal senator from Ohio, banging the gavel. They're yelling at each other. I mean, what is this? Because... You know, when you watch the legislative bodies in some foreign countries, they get people get into fistfights. But here in America, we kind of think that at least when you're in the Senate, you could be bored to death, but you're not going to, you know, see fighting. And what what was going on is Sherrod Brown made a comment about how this tax plan of the Republicans is just a plan to have wealthy people keep more of their money, make more money, and the rest of society, middle class and lower income people, have to pay for it. In other words, the mass of America will have to pay for tax cuts for the one-tenth of one percent, one or two percent at the top economically. And suddenly, Orrin Hatch blows up. I'm sick and tired of hearing you liberals talking about all the time. It's all for the rich. and We care about regular people. We care about the middle class. And then he said, I grew up poor. I had a hard scrab of life in the beginning. I didn't come from money. Look, I made it. And then he, I mean, he was, good Lord, we were thinking he's getting a heart attack. He was getting so angry. And I believe that he really believes that. But senators and congressmen and legislators do not speak with their speeches. Their truth is only the legislation they pass. You can say you're for anything you want, but it's how you vote when it comes down to the vote and what you manage to pass. That is the reality. So you can say you care about middle-income people, But if the tax plan you pass screws middle-income people, then it doesn't matter how much you say you love them. You obviously don't. So let's talk about, now it's going to be changed during the course of the hearings, but this is the basic plan. When they complain tax tax cut for the rich, I'll just give you a few examples where it really is. And let me say, these are all things that I would personally benefit from. So it's not like, well, how do you know that? I know that because I talked with my accountant. And he says, stop giving speeches. (laughs) But anyway, 
It is a tax cut. First of all, they want to eliminate the estate tax. Unless you're making millions, you don't pay an estate tax. So if they eliminate the state tax, people like me would save millions maybe. And people wealthier than me, really millions. No estate tax? Are you kidding me? Just open up the bank doors and hand me the money. Then they want to do away with the alternative minimum tax. And that's a tax because based on the current laws, if you've got good attorneys and everything, you can figure out where no matter how much money you made or your business made, you can figure out a way there. Sometimes you don't have to pay any taxes. Even Trump said that. There are years that he didn't pay any taxes. So the... The reason they put in this alternative minimum tax is that even if you can figure out all these ways to not have to pay taxes, you're still going to have to pay something. They want to eliminate that. They want to reduce the corporate tax from 35% to 20%. Now, for these cuts, here's the problem. It's not that, gee, you don't want people because they're wealthy not to be able to have continued success as long as everyone else can have it as well. But the problem they're running into, I think it was 2010. If I'm wrong on the year, I'm wrong on the year. But there is legislation now which says when you're passing a tax bill, it has to be revenue neutral. What they mean by that is you can't, quote, reform the tax laws without... You can't reform them if it's going to increase the deficit. So if you're going to give a cut in taxes, which means reducing the revenue that comes to the government, you have to find another way to make that up, either cut expenses or find another another source of revenue. So the question then becomes, how are they going to pay for this tax cut for the wealthy? And some of the things they've put in are horrible for middle-income people, not to mention low-income people, but a lot of low-income people, you know, don't pay the federal tax. So we're really talking about the middle class here. The first answer they will give is that the reason uh, it's okay if wealthier people and corporations make more money, it's the old trickle-down theory. If corporations don't have to pay so much in taxes, they will have more money around, and with that money, they will either increase their investment, they'll be able to pay their employees more, they'll be able to hire more employees. Well, that turns out to be nonsense. And it's not nonsense because I figured it out. It's nonsense because it has virtually never, ever worked. For decades now, this trickle-down theory doesn't work. And the reason is that every business is in business to make money. So they want to increase the profit margin. If suddenly there's a new way to have more profit, they're not going to take all that and pay their workers more because then the profit goes down, their stock price goes down, etc. There's no real incentive to turn it over to the workers. The only way you get more people employed is if demand increases. But right now, if businesses can replace a person with a computer, with technology, with people hired overseas, they will choose that. Why do you think the business community is so opposed to minimum wage. You know, what should, you know, they, it is not the feeling of corporations to pay people more money. You pay as low a wage as you can get away with. You know, you want the people to come in and still work for you, but you don't give them extra. You don't say, you know what, 
let's hire five more people. We don't meet, need them, but there are five people out there that could use a job. So that doesn't happen. So they think they're going to get more money into the government because if you do away with these taxes, corporations are going to hire more people. No. So how else are they going to get the money to pay for the tax cuts? Well, they could cut expenses. First, eliminate. They're talking about eliminating state and local taxes. Now, when you figure out your taxes, you know if you're paying a state and local tax, you can take that off, you know, what your federal taxes will be, your taxable income. That's a big deduction for you. They want to put limits on mortgage deductions. They want to put limits on what you can deduct from your property tax. So who winds up paying for this? It's the middle class. And by the way, they also think they can they will get cut expenses by cutting some social programs. Cut the repeal the education tax breaks. Repeal the personal deduction that you now get on your income tax for each one that's filing. Something like $4,000, something like that. So all these things to be able to afford it, they are doing So the original cuts I talked about for very wealthy people, they can afford it if they make the middle class either pay more in taxes or cut the programs that go to middle and lower income people. And then the most disgusting thing of all, you ever wonder why in the beginning Trump and the Republicans were pushing to repeal Obamacare? They wanted that as their first priority. Why did they choose that as their first priority? Because if they could do away with the individual mandate, if they could cut, if they could do away with uh, the Affordable uh, Care Act, Health Care Act, if they could do away with that, if everyone didn't have to get insurance, then a lot of the people that under the law now would have to get insurance, they're people that need subsidies, right? A lot of the people that don't buy insurance don't get it because they really can't afford it. But now if there's a law that says you have to have it, then you have to have it. And the law also said we will subsidize you. Well, if all of a sudden people don't have to get insurance, then these people won't. And the federal government won't have to provide the subsidies. They think they can save, I think the estimate was $338 billion dollars. You know, just by doing that. So think about it. The consequence of that, by the way, as the Congressional Budget Office said, is that 13 million people would now lose their health insurance. So in order to do these things at the top, eliminate the estate tax, do away with the alternative minimum tax, reduce corporate taxes from 35, and by the way, these corporations are not all paying 35%. They figure out ways to, to pay less. But anyway, reduce it to 20% so that you can have these things. The middle class pays more in taxes, loses a lot of the services they, they need. Last point. Why are they doing that? The quick answer is, well, that's what their base wants. But it's not. The Republican base, look, when they talk about how did Trump, you know, get the Electoral College, well... Those rural voters, those industrial workers, the, the white lower middle class in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, they were the ones that voted for Trump. They get killed by this tax plan. So it's not even appealing to their base, even though the base doesn't understand this. 
They are appealing to one small group. They are called Republican wealthy donors. They are the ones that have said to Republican leadership, if you do nothing else, you will get this through or we won't finance Republican campaigns in the congressional elections and in the next presidential elections. Do not come to us. Our contributions gave you the Congress, the Senate, and the presidency. You will deliver on this. And if you don't deliver on this, we're we're turning off the spigot. For that group, this is all happening. So when Orrin Hatch goes up in arms, how can you say this is only for wealthy people? He is so misguided. I'm going to assume that he's honest and he's not thinking it through because otherwise it's a vicious lie. It's a trick, particularly on the people who voted for Trump. This tax bill, which they're talking about, screws the middle class. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, thank you, Jerry. And as Gene said at the top of our show, um, this evening we have with us Mr. J.T. Hathaway. Hi, J.T. Hello, hello. And this is exciting. You're kind of getting back on this horse again, huh? Yeah, it's so, been, a, been a little while. So tell us playing. a little bit about what brought you to us tonight. Uh, this lovely lady over here, my wife, she's coming here to the folk school, and um, and I'm just glad she, she submitted the uh, songs, and they said, come on down. It just happened to be Thanksgiving, so I got an excuse to come down to Cincinnati again. And, and you're in St. Louis right now? Yeah, that's right, St. Louis. Very moment, cool. So. Well, we're very excited to have you and excited right. to hear what you're going to be singing for us. And their first song is... When the tide comes in. Right. It's a, right. This is a song I wrote. It's been about 10 years. I wrote it when I was living in New York City and uh, was not written in a bathtub, but there are a few <laughs> songs that I have recorded in a bathtub. It's got a good, good sound to it. So. When the tide comes in, will you stand by me? In the dark ocean, in the deep, deep sea, we'll document all our findings. The residents and battalions in biochemistry. And when the tide comes in, will you stand by me? In the fading shores of the red salt sea, where the anchors fall slowly. Residents are hesitant to leave so quietly And when the tide comes in, will you stand by me? The rain, snow, hail and wind right beside me Then my heart was caving in Depths I'd reached it only breached the seams that kept my inclinations in And when the tide comes in will you remind me I'm in love with a girl who's far behind me In the place they breathe oxygen Where money's made and spent and paid and earned and saved and spent away again
you. Bravo. It sounded. Thank you. That sounded like it could have come off the Royal Tenenbaum soundtrack. It had that like real lilty. I really right. like that. That was very cool. It's all right to me. So you've been away from music for how long? Well, I never left music. I just haven't really been out in the world with it, you know. Just uh, stepped back from. I toured around a little bit. Played, uh, like I said, around in New York and Nashville, and lived on the road a little bit. And um, just made sense to kind of hide away yeah know? so i've been writing i never stopped writing and, and you're a dad um, now right you've got a two right, yeah right. so is that and we have a another one coming she's about four months and oh, i was wondering i don't know if i'm the legitimate father so i was hoping this would be the place oh, where we could get this figured out <laughs> yeah. i thought that's why yeah. i was coming second here show of the night right? she called Congratulations. me and said, yeah. Yeah. That's really and said cool. oh music i didn't well, know we have a surprise for you come on out All right, there's a bathroom over there. I know, right? Cup. We'll get a cup. She's drinking water. That's the only way we're going to do it, Megan. I, Gene, it's your show, man. I'm not going in there. I'm not saying that. Right? Sorry, JT. We apologize. You didn't think I otherwise. For it. I always asked yeah, for it. Right? Yeah. You do have an... Well, first of all, tell us where we can hear some more of your um, music. Well, on the Jerry Springer podcast as a start, we're, whoop, it's whoop. been a minute, so I don't yeah. have anything out there right now. I'm kind of... Uh, but I promise you'll hear from me down the road. I'll be keeping our friends at the folk school here informed. So Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Super. So your next song is called Amelia. Amelia, which was written uh, pretty much finished up the lyrics today. Wrote it yesterday. No kidding. Yeah. Amelia... This is fresh. Yeah, yes. this is fresh. <laughs> it wasn't the best. As, yeah. <laughs> as JT is getting set up because he's putting on a harp, uh, people who are listening who are songwriters and performers do what he did mm-hmm. and send us a song at jerryspringer.com. And when, when you go to jerryspringer.com, you'll see a box that says Songwriter Stump. Click on that. It's got a form. You basically give us legal rights to play it on the podcast and on our, what we call the radio station on uh, our website. So follow his lead. And that's why we're glad he's done this. Mm-hmm. But it was actually his wife that did it. Right. <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, his, wife, his wife was the one that promoted him. Let's put it out. No, she's my manager. Yeah, because she, many, many I love it. Things. She sent <laughs> the form in without you knowing. Right. She sent the form in on the sly. It. And then and Casey Campbell, our music coordinator, who listens to all of them, and I listen to some of them, and he said, yeah, this is, I like this. Let's do this. And mm-hmm. so that's how it works. Absolutely. So, and if you Perfect. don't have a wife, get a neighbor to send it <laughs> get in. Yeah. Find a friend. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> or go to Tinder. <laughs> well, get a wife. <laughs> this is why you don't get the microphone at this point in the show. Yeah. Yeah. All right, JT, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> Us out here. See what I can do. <laughs> Somebody put the light on me like the night train. I was rolling away. It was easy being the son of Eve till the low down feeling got to really believe. Didn't anybody ever tell you, man? The ground was lake till you fell through, man. It's a long way down to the bottom of this. And it's hard to say just where it is Slowly rising up Holy visions of 
Choir of angels sing of thee Oh sweet Amelia, sea of light is all around you Amelia, queen of the unknown You're the last of the old kind Holding on to the dream, babe Though it ain't what it seems, babe Don't ever let it go Rising up, holy visions of the angels sing of thee. Oh, Amelia, lies all around you. Amelia, queen of the unknown, you were the last of the old kind, holding on to the dream, babe. Oh, it ain't what it seems, babe. Don't ever let it go. very first pod podcast exclusive here oh so we have nowhere yeah. else has this you can go to jerryspringer.com and listen to more um and Wait, so we're gonna have you, you sing with mr jerry springer now and this is his last song <laughs> so it was it was it was a great run jt <laughs> talk <laughs> about it well. talk about do. exclusive <laughs> <laughs> one and done here we'll now a little down by the riverside and if you don't mind yeah. jerry's gonna jump in there with you All but right. thanks for being on we really enjoyed thank you so you. much it's been a pleasure thank yeah. you very much I'm gonna lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Gonna lay down my heavy load Down by the riverside And gonna study Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. Gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, down by the riverside.
Now you're here.